Welcome to The Link, the podcast that links the past to the present for those who went to high school in the 1980s. It is a perfect time to reflect and to take stock and to think about really fun parts of our past, but also some challenges. I get to see and hear all your amazing faces and a blast from the past, which is always super exciting, seeing who we were then, who we are now. We really didn't know what was going on in each other's lives very much. And so finding out the real scoop is incredibly rewarding. Yes, indeed. Welcome back to The Link. This is your producer, your faithful producer, David Yaz of pod617.com. But more importantly, a member of the graduating class of 1986 of Milton Academy. And of course, I have the hosts of this show, my classmates here with me. Farah Pandith, Diana Donovan, and Meredith Zenner are all back in the virtual studio. Yeah. How are you guys doing? Good. So why don't we get right to it? Our, our, our guest is is uh, skipping out on something extremely important to be with us. So let's get, let's get to him. Meredith, would you like to clue the listeners in as to who is joining us today? I will, even though I'm sure it's actually probably written on the podcast, but pretending that it is not. Okay. I hope you guys are... <laughs> snapped in because this gentleman has accomplished unbelievably extraordinary things that I can't even begin to know. I will just start out by saying that he is Director of Pediatric Surgery at Shriners Hospital for Children in Northern California and a chief of, not a chief, he is not a chief, he is chief of the Division of Pediatric and Fetal Surgery in the Department of Surgery at the University of California, Davis Children's Hospital. No, they say too too many chiefs spoil the broth, so, right. Only one chief, yes. Went to MIT. The the lists of his accomplishments are dwarf most human mortals. (laughs) And he is lovely. And wonderful. <laughs> and we all have extraordinarily fond memories of now Dr. Shin Hirose. Welcome, Shin. Shin, we're really excited to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for that warm welcome. And we're out we're out of time, so thank you for joining <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah, it was a long intro. Far, do you want to kick kick things off? Well, look, I, I want to say I've known Shin for a very long time. We were in the lower school together, and Shin is exactly the person that that I would have expected him to be. He's warm and wonderful, but he's also giving back to the world in a in a really spectacular way. So I have only the fondest and most wonderful memories of Shin. I I am worried that we're going to have a conversation about the sixth sixth grade play, Shin, and uh, and, and I think if we if we do, I. I I will find a photograph somewhere um, of, of that experience. But Wait, did Shin, Shin and I were did, co-conspirators in that play. Did Shin play Little Abner? No, Shin did I, not. Was, I was General Bull Moose, okay. which is a totally messed up. <laughs> yes. Let's kick it off with the sixth grade play. Listen. Do you remember it, it, your lines? Can anyone say a line or two? Diana, you're not going to make us do this. No, it I, is, it's a bad. It's a bad you song. brought it up. Yeah, you brought the it up. Song was what's good for General Bull Moose is good for the USA. <laughs> exactly. Oh boy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I was. Yes. I co-starred with Shin and Guys and Dolls. Shin played. Oh, yeah. Shin played nicely, nicely, and I played Gambler Number Five. <laughs> So, <laughs> I was a hot box farmer at. So. That's right. I thought that we put on a pretty good show. Oh my god! Yeah, wow, fun. those I, those costumes. Whew. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, so what I want to know, I mean, because we, the reason why I brought it to lower school is because Shin is from Massachusetts, and I want to know how you ended up on the other coast, Shin. Oh, well, actually, it's, it's, it's an interesting story. So it, I'll try not to be too long-winded, but, you know, I, I, all my, my siblings went to Milton, too, and so my older brother, and then we all actually ended up in, in medicine, and when Rio graduated from Columbia Med School, he was applying for residency, so post-med school training, and, and we all did surgery. And so he was interviewing, of course, in all the East Coast programs, Mass General, Brigham, all the like sort of, you know, Johns Hopkins, all the sort of famous storied old hospitals. And on the West Coast, there's a handful that are really sort of high end. And one of them is UCSF in San Francisco. And the interviews are in the winter. 
And while San Francisco is not known for balmy weather for a Massachusetts person, it's like <laughs> freaking paradise. So he called us and, you know, this is in the days from dial up phones, right? So we're, we're on our landlines and it costs money to, to call. And he's, he's calling the middle of the day, which is like the most expensive time. And so we're like, this must be important. And he's like, I'm wearing shorts. <laughs> was, was he playing well, Frisbee? <laughs> he, not yet, but he was like, this is ridiculous. He's like, why why do we live yeah. in this place yeah. where we have to own boots like we own and that was pretty much it he goes like this is an awesome program i'm going here so wow. he ended up going to his residency at san francisco and of course he was the surgery residency at ucsf is five clinical years and we do about three years of research so eight years for just general surgery and then he did two years of transplant so about 10 years of training which we all did for our own specialties but so we spent a lot of time visiting him and one by one we all ended up going to the west coast for our training <laughs> and there's a saying right like live in new york and leave before you get too hard and live in northern california and leave before you get too soft but if you don't leave like you get really soft and i'm like, squishy i hear you i've been here 31 here, years right? you can't get away from it plus like diana knows so it's massachusetts is great like you can drive to the beach and you can drive to the mountains and you can drive to new york and do all this stuff boston itself was a phenomenal city but you can't change the weather right and in Northern California, you can like drive to the snow in Tahoe and get like amazing skiing. And in the same day, drive to the Bay Area and be on a beach that granted the water's never warm enough to go into, but it's the beach. And you're not, you're wearing a windbreaker. So fundamentally, it was the weather. And we then, don't but, shovel our driveways ever. Yeah. But, so, but Shin, did car. all of you guys move out to the West then? Yeah. So, Yes, <laughs> um, oh <my> <laughs> but Keiko, you know, the boys have all been sort of a little, well, maybe Rio and I have been more single-minded about location. So Rio never left San Francisco. So okay. he moved to San Francisco in 81. He's been there for since then. Oh no, 80, 89, 89. And he's been here since. Keiko did her residency in at UW Seattle for, okay. ENT, for ENT and ended up going back to Boston for her fellowship and then took her first job in Cleveland and now at WashU and in, in, um, in St. Louis. So she's sort of more career-minded and took like the best job. And I, I stayed, you know, I, I did my training in California at UCSF and UC Davis, then went to Columbia back in New York for my fellowship and came back and have been in California's faculty. I was at UCSF for about eight years, now back here at UC Davis. It's because, you know, California's <laughs> hard to get away from. Kenzo tried to go away. He actually trained in San Francisco there's How many also, siblings do you have? There's, <laughs> there well, technically, there's, technically, there's five of us, but the half sister, she is, she didn't do medicine, so she she hasn't had this crazy back and forth thing. Good for her. She just broke right. She broke the mold. <laughs> you know, I tried. I was I was a rebel. Right, my rebellion was to be an engineer. Well, oh, that, wow. that this is really interesting. <laughs> that is pretty darn rebellious. rebellious. Yeah, yeah, really. So, well, so after I graduated from MIT, I took my first job working in Japan. And I was doing robotics research and it was really fun to study. It turns out, but the actual work is a little bit of um, drudgery. And, and I was a little naive at the time. Like it looked to me going to the future that being an engineer, you're either a cog in the machine or you had to, to advance or to get into management. And I really wasn't interested in going to business school and doing all that stuff. And it seemed like being a physician was a good mix of technology and sort of humanistic stuff and being interact with people and, and, and that you have a little bit more autonomy and control of your life, which turns out is not true. But <laughs> the truth is that it is great and that, you know, I'm constantly interacting with new people because the patients constantly interacting with new trainees and, and it's great to train the next generation of surgeons. And it's really, it's, it's a great mix of being able to do things you know, a, a manual labor part of it with surgery and the t technology involved in doing that stuff and doing research to try and advance the field and then teaching. It's, it's really a great mix for someone that, that one has a little bit of ADD and then also mm -hmm. wants to sort of have a mix of science, technology, and, and, and humanism. That's the kind cool. of surgery you do, that, does that involve robotics in some way? It it's must. interesting you say that. So surgical robotics is still, in, in my mind, sort of maybe in its early adolescence to late sort of school age it's not quite that developed yet and certainly not for what I do so my, my specialty is pediatric surgery and most of the things I do in terms of niche work is fetal surgery so operating on babies that are born yet and operating on neonates so babies that are just born so that's really my shtick and the robot while is pretty cool now actually hasn't been used much for any of those particular operations although I'll tell you sort of under the radar I'm training on the robot because I want to start using it for fetal operations to be able to do things that are a little bit more invasive than what we do. 
That's so amazing. It's incredible, Shen. I mean, just really, really, but you've, you've combined, I mean, we're joking about the fact that you're in medicine, but you've combined your engineering background, obviously, into, yeah. into this. So you figured out a way to do both. But I think one of the things that stand out, just because I've known you for so long, what a compassionate human being you are, and you always have been. And so you're, to me, it's like, oh my God, you figured it all out. You have all the components of the things that you, not everything that you excel at, you excel at more than that. But but I I find it profoundly amazing. At, in your early 50s, here you are doing this. You no, know, you guys are way too kind because first of all, it, it wasn't planned at all. It's all serendipity. <laughs> and it's all like fucking dumb luck <laughs> he'll bleep you out don't no, worry I'm sorry about that it's all it's, it's all podcast. just dumb luck and, and on all honesty i stood on the shoulders of giants like this i you don't I, get into mit on luck I, yeah. I hate to break it to you yeah but <laughs> you're one of those giants you have I'll, to uh you have well, to recognize I, I, the I lives really, that you have changed the lives that you've changed, the lives that you have allowed to thrive because of you and your work, that's extraordinary and cannot be I, I, really, I do appreciate that. But, but the truth is, and this is honest, I'm not, this isn't false modesty. It takes a team man, and, and mm-hmm. it's not all me at all. And I definitely have a role to play. There's no question, but, but I can't do it without a, a cast of characters who are all extraordinarily talented. And I've, I've, and another part of the luck has been being in a position where I get to choose my team and having the luck of meeting the right people and then convincing them to come work is crazy. <laughs> He's crazy. He's like, look, I'm going to try this. Do you, you want to join? <laughs> and, and, and they're like, and sure. What the like, yeah, sure. Why not? We'll try it. It sounds reasonable. Right. And so having that kind of luck, it, there's so much luck. I just and, and you're right that there's a lot of sweat equity and there's a lot of a lot of what you, of of things falling in the right place. But but I if if you want to steer it back to Milton, which I, we probably should. I mean, we I feel like I've been given so many opportunities, right? And the first one being the secondary school education and getting to work or meet first of all people in, in my formative years, like yourselves, frankly, who are smart and kind and driven, and talented, and diverse, and, and, you know, forward thinking, and having that from the very beginning of of my consciousness, definitely shaped the way I look at the world, and how I look at myself, and what my potential is, right, so from the beginning, I never thought that I was going to fail, right, right, like, and that wasn't talked to me by my parents who told me I was going to fail every time. You know, good luck. You're, you're screwed. Right? My parents are Japanese. They're, they're, you know, they're but, but, from the, but from the beginning, I mean, just it, like, they're lovely, but they're just, okay. but, the sky is falling. But, or, or, you know, Oh, you're dumb. Right. You know? But I did well in the SAT. You're still dumb, you know, but, but, you know, Milton really did imbue this feeling of like, you can do this. And part of it is because people from Milton did all sorts of insane stuff. I remember the day I realized, oh, that guy Buck, Mr. Fuller was a Milton guy. Oh my God. Like even it's not just all these rich people that, you know, came over on the Mayflower, but there were some of those. those, I just hired one from Milton. (laughs) I think he's class of 96. His name's Jonathan Fuller. He was in the Milton magazine. Great guy. He has a a survey podcast actually. Wow. Um, and and we're talking about this and his his he's his he's cousins with Don Sage. So he's in the Bancroft Forbes family, which you know is from the Mayflower. So but But Shin, can I can I ask you about this? Because I've been having some some really interesting conversations we all have in with various guests. And and I love what you said about sort of your formative years because for most Americans, I, I think it'd be very hard for them to say high school is what sort of laid the foundation for how oh, yeah. they thought about yeah. things. So it's really extraordinary for, for a Milton person to be able to point back. And, and I'm wondering how much you think, because we were, it, Milton was diverse, but it certainly was not as diverse 
as it could have been when we went, we were there a long time ago. And so there were only a handful of people in our class that had ethnic backgrounds that were different than sort of an Anglo-Saxon kind of, kind of, you know, context. I'm wondering how you how you explored your identity at Milton with with sort of a, a different a different background. I'm saying this as somebody who is um, of Indian origin, so yeah. you know, sort of splitting two worlds as you were growing up. So it's so interesting. So I, 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 when I say it's diverse, I guess I'm referring to myself. <laughs> but the, the, here's here's the sad truth. The sad truth is that I was I was very unaware, for better or for worse of my Japanese heritage until I was well into my mid twenties. I just had no idea. I thought I did. I really did. I thought I was like, I understood it. And I thought that it was like, I understood what parts of me were Japanese and what parts of me were American. I really identified as American. I still do actually. Um, But I'll tell you that. And and once we get through this, that that time in Japan was really telling for me. It was actually critical, but in terms of my understanding who I am, but at Milton, I was never conscious of it for better, for worse. So the, the good side was that I felt like it was very rare for someone to treat me differently because I was Asian. And when they did, as you, you, you may not know, cause this is a polite group of people, but the non-polite group of people that I hung around with knew that it would <laughs> often turn into a fisticuffs and I was never afraid. You mean off. the guys? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the non-polite. <laughs> right, non-polite. Like, well, you know, like the 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 the, the nerds, right? Yeah, or the even nerds. The fools, right? Either way, <laughs> you know. And I know that I was in the geeky math class, and I know that I was one of the music guys, but I also played sports, mm-hmm. and I also knew that I was one of the strongest guys in the class. And there was never a situation where you know, if someone said something racially, you know, charged to me, and Dave probably has been the witness of some of this. I. I had no compunction about turning it into a physical confrontation. You yeah, would take yeah. them down. Yeah. You, uh, <laughs> they learned that lesson. Because we were primitive. Like we're teenage boys are so primitive. Yeah. Well, we, you, <laughs> you didn't mess we with We had an inkling of that. You yeah, didn't... we did. We kind of knew. But yeah. I didn't know what it was based on. Like what, what would people say? It was rare. But every now and then like people would make some like jokes that I didn't like. And then I'd be like, you know, what are you talking about? And, you know, I think that there was a point where people understood that confrontations certainly with me at a certain point became unpleasant. Yeah. No, you didn't, you didn't mess with Shin is basically. <laughs> yeah. but the, the... Were you on the wrestling team? For a little while, but really yeah. not, not like Matt, not like Griffin, but you know, it, I had all this anger, right? Like I was, you know, my mom died when I was in seventh grade, right? Between seventh and eighth grade. And I mm-hmm. didn't deal with that. Well, I really did not. I, I didn't have the emotional maturity nor the, the ability to, to even comprehend what that was doing to me as a person. And I, and I was emotionally unable to, to channel it in any other way other than anger. And, and, and it was really simmering the whole time. It's, I I laughed out loud at that Avengers movie when, 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 uh, when Mark Ruffalo goes, do you know what the secret is to, 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 to to Tony Stark, right? Because he was asking, what's your secret to saying calm? Is it, you know, yoga, tantric, a (laughs) giant bag of weed? What is it? Right. Mm. And, and he doesn't tell him. And finally he goes, the secret is I'm always angry. Mm-hmm. And I laughed yeah. because that's actually how I lived my life until probably like two years ago, maybe like four years ago, like where I started actually consciously trying not to be angry. I've been angry my whole life. And I think that that in, in a funny way, you know, and Dave's referencing to like, you didn't mess with me because like, I was like, other people took a, a few seconds to, to blow up. And I would turn it into a physical, life-threatening confrontation. But for whatever it's worth, Shin, you really did apparently suppress it well because even though, yes, everyone knew not to mess with Shin, I felt you were one of the more welcoming guys. You know, I started in ninth grade. You were you were one of the people that you, you couldn't miss right away. It's like, who's that guy? That's Shin. And so, but I remember you as being funny, good-natured, always, you know, Interesting, talk, talking about music, talking about sports, whatever you're talking about. The only example I can think of of what you're describing is I was, I don't know why I was talking about it, but I was talking about the ritual of Japanese suicide, which I pronounced Harikari. And you came over and you said, Dave, it's pronounced Arikiri or something like that. And I went, okay. <laughs> Although I think you might have even been joking about that. So, so well, I, I'm glad I came, that, that, I, that I didn't come across as, as psychotic. Not as, at all. As I remember myself being, but it, it was, you know, it was, 
everyone had their battles, right? Everyone had their demons. And, and I think that part of the problem with, with being young in that age is, is not understanding that everyone has that. And really, I, if I could go back, the, the one thing I wish I could do is tell myself, like, look, man, cut people, cut people slack. You're not the only one who's struggling. You're not the only one who's suffering. And everyone's got their stuff. And it's, I, I wish I, I, I wish I could have had that, but I, I was, there was a time in that, in that, in that, in that, in that time in Milton where I was, I was lost. And honestly, the people that really saved me were people like Ellie Griffin. And um, she was an extraordinary, extraordinary yeah. person. She, yeah. she really was. Um, it was really Matt and Larry and their families that, that really made me, that helped me get through all that stuff and really made me able to understand that there were people that, that cared. Shun, it's so, it's so, it's hard to hear because, you know, we care about you. I'm so happy, obviously, at the other end of this, that we're talking about it in this way. And, and I hope that as those people who listen to this podcast understand, you know, success on paper, you know, there's a navigation on other things that happen while you're also sort of trying to make a living and doing what you need to do and following your heart. Can we go back to what you were saying about your, your year in Japan? I'm really okay. curious how, how that, had you visited Japan as, when, no, when we were, you had I never, had never okay. been back. So I was born in Japan. We came over when I was like one and a half or two and I'd never been back. And so I thought it was going to be this wonderful Alex Haley Roots thing. Like, you know, like, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to reconnect with the Japanese people and my Japanese side. It's going to be this wonderful experience. And I got to tell you, it was terrible. It was just awful. With, right. with yeah. this face and this name, the expectations upon me by the company was that essentially I would understand Japanese culture and speak Japanese perfectly, which I just didn't at all. And, uh, and very quickly they realized that I wasn't. And the funny thing is, so then I was called either Twinkie or Banana. Yeah, oh yeah, the whole time. And then and then I learned the term Batakusa. I don't even know. I don't even know those slurs. A, a Twinkie you... so, or Banana, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. And <laughs> And the, the truth was that I also realized after going there and coming back, I visited, I, I visited, I came back to the States in the middle for, for like Christmas and stuff. There was a time where I sort of lost my identity and then I, I was like, holy crap, I'm not really American anymore because I came back and realized like, it's really weird being Asian in Boston when you're used to being around all Asians all of a sudden you're like, wow, I'm like, there are not that many of us around, <laughs> um, except like at MIT. And then, but then I realized I didn't fit in in Japan either. And I had this, like, the, I remember this moment of being like, wow, like, who am I? Where am I? How do I, how do I mitigate this? And, and, you know, what's my identity? And you realize like, yeah, you're a mix and you sort of straddle both worlds and you have to understand that they're both valuable and they're both important parts of, of your persona. And that it's okay to embrace them both. And you don't need to be ashamed of things. Like I remember very clearly, like having people visit our house when we were kids, you know, having those, what I guess they call them play dates now, but I don't know what we did. We just hung out. I don't even remember what we did. We go over each other's houses and just play. Yeah, it's just you'd, hanging you'd out. Do yeah, prank, exactly. prank phone call, yeah, play I records. Don't even, I don't even know what we're doing. We're just hanging around. But, but you know, we'd open the fridge. And there'd be all sorts of stuff in there, right? And like, I knew better than open random Tupperwares my mother was saving because there was always something <laughs> weird in there. And I remember like opening stuff and, and with, with like friends over the house and, and being like embarrassed because there's, you know, funny smelling stuff. And like looking back on it, it's just really silly because it's just Japanese food, but being embarrassed about it. And then being embarrassed of like being basically dressed down in Japanese by my mother, which now honestly, I would you know, give my left arm to be yelled at by my mother. Of course. Were there, I just have a question about the experience in Japan. Were there, did you navigate that identity crisis alone or did you develop some friendships with people who helped you through it? So Japanese relationships are really interesting, man. Like, so there's a, most of the people at work, I never knew their first name. So I, we, we, we call each other by our last names. Right. So, but, and it, I had like two or three people, this one guy, and I've forgotten his first name, his name is Fujita. He trained in Hong, he'd gone to high school in Hong Kong so he could speak English with a British accent, which was weird, right? So Japanese, <laughs> British accent, kind of Japanese, British thing. And he sort of helped me understand because he'd been in England for you know a while and understood that there was this weird dichotomy and that they expected mm-hmm. me to be a certain way and that I was clueless. But essentially it was alone. I, I, had, I had this girlfriend that I don't know if I should call her girl, but anyway, there was someone I was, there's this woman I was hanging around with and, uh, but she, it, it wasn't really one of those emotional, like sort of a more supportive kind of situations. So, but it was, it, it, it was, it was one of those things that I just sort of navigated on my own. And I actually, when I came back, 
it was it was really interesting to to feel sort of like Boston would felt foreign for a little while. And I think one of the reasons, honestly, I like living on the West Coast is honestly there's more Asians out here. Mm-hmm. And and I and the interesting thing is, this is going to sound really bizarre, but like when I was growing up, the only Asians I knew were either my family or people in academics, right? So when I came to the West Coast and you see Asian homeless people or Asian bus drivers and stuff, you're like, oh my god, like you can do anything. Like you, and I know it sounds really stupid, but that's like liberating on certain on a certain level. Where like, you know, like the Asian people are regular people now. They're not all just either academics or you know doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, but that is really important to see. I mean, because I think Boston, I mean, shielded us from so much of our own nation in terms of what was going on and different stories and heritages. And we never learned at Milton anything around anything that was not Anglo-Saxon um, history. And so you didn't hear stories, for example, of Black Americans. I mean, we studied the yeah. Civil War, but we didn't go deep at all. We certainly we certainly never talked about Asia as anything but a big blob, as if everything is exactly the same. And it's it's heartbreaking to me as somebody who has been in foreign policy for now most of my career, that you can come out of a school as expensive and elite as Milton. And you can ask people of our, you know, age group to talk about some of the history that's different between a Korea and a Japan and a China, for example, or India or a Pakistan, they could not do that based on our education. And that's crazy. You know, that's yeah, really I, I nuts. Couldn't, I couldn't point them out on a map after Milton, actually. Right, yeah. right. And it, and it's weird. Shin, you know, your story about sort of coming to California and seeing people in, in different ways that that was my experience when I, I I got to Oxford for a summer semester and I suddenly saw South Asians in all kinds of just normal roles in Britain and I had never seen that in Boston all of our South I mean anybody Indian was either an engineer or a doctor and they came from a very <laughs> elite families right and and I was like, wait, wait, there are bus drivers or cab drivers. There are people at the yeah. grocery store who are, and that's, it was awesome, but it was very weird. It was, so I, I completely get that. I really, really it's, do. It's liberating. It is. It's really interesting how liberating that is. You, you, you would think that it's, that it would, it would, it would burst a bubble in your head, but it's actually a good bubble to pop. Isn't that the whole thing with representation? People talk about representation. Like if you can't see yourself. That's right. Reflected back, you just. You you kind of miss. I don't There's know. A disconnect. Some, there's some sort of identity well, thing. Isolation. Well, you can't imagine it without seeing it. Like you think you can, and you know maybe you think you know seeing it in literature and movies and stuff helps, but it's it's different seeing it in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's also why, frankly, I, I do believe in in you know we really need to get underrepresented underrepresented minorities in positions of leadership. In, in different fields be, other than things like entertainment and athletics because there have to be role models. Mm-hmm. No, you, you can't dream it if you can't see it. Or it's, I, I shouldn't say you can't. It's, it's really hard to dream it if you can't see it. It's really hard. Hi, this is David Yaz, producer of The Link Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, we hope you consider supporting us with a contribution through Patreon. The Link is a labor of love for us, but there are production costs attached to creating a quality show. And you can help us by visiting patreon.com slash the link podcast. We have some cool ways of thanking you for your support, including t-shirts, mugs, and shout outs on the show. You can do us a solid for as little as $5 a month, and we will continue to bring you great conversations that foster the bonds of our high school class and beyond. Once again, please visit patreon.com slash the link podcast. Now back to the show. Let me jump in for one sec. I want to ask. I want to ask a science question. People keep telling me to watch this documentary on Netflix, which is about CRISPR, which is this DNA replacement method that apparently can stop us from aging or something. It is so revolutionary, and the the documentary doesn't have any like good good rock music or bright lights or anything. So I keep getting bored. I'm having trouble getting through it. So you need explosions and car chases like me. Exactly. Right. I mean, come on. I mean, you expect me to sit through this for longer than seven minutes, but but anyway, uh, documentary. I know he's getting paid by Netflix. I swear to God. Every every single podcast. That was the Netflix plug. You're right. I'm sorry. 
Unintentionally. <laughs> Did you say Netflix? My question actually is whether or not you're familiar with that thing. You've been in medicine for a long time, and I wonder if you can tell us something that you're impressed with that in science that has advanced over the course of the time that, that you've been been practicing, and maybe what things do you dream of for the future? Sure. So, well, first, CRISPR is incredibly exciting. And I, I'll tell you right now, I'm not a geneticist. I'm not a molecular biologist. So my, my understanding is on the level of like Scientific American. Okay. So, but basically it's a gene editing tool. And interestingly, it brings up, it's, it's, it's like some of the things that I do in terms of fetal intervention, you, you could call it ethicogenic in that it, it, it really creates ethical problems, like just by its mere existence. And I don't know if you guys know, but there was a set of twins born in China whose genome was edited using CRISPR to try and make them more resistant to HIV. Oh, yeah. Boy. And, and that, that Chinese researcher has been lambasted and censured, and I think maybe jailed, but I can't remember. But there's two humans on this planet whose genome has been edited by CRISPR. And it, that's at least two. And who knows what else is going on in terms of selections for height or gender or whatever, because these, these things, as, as we learn how to manipulate the genome and what, what the codes mean, they, they will be in, almost inevitably, if not, if not sort of openly, certainly on a more covert basis, because people want to want their kids to, to be a certain way. I think, I, I think, and I, I, I don't, I don't think this is right, by the way. I, I think that that's, it's ridiculous and terrible, but, but I think it's inevitable, honestly. Well, I mean, and, well, as a, I mean, the, the guy who made the, the kids resistant to HIV, I guess could say, well, what the hell is wrong with that, right? I mean, I don't want them to get HIV, right. but sure. but I guess sure. what you're saying is where these lines are going to be, it's going to come so fast and these lines are going to be impossible to draw, right? Uh, right. I was going to say, if you've ever known anyone who's used a sperm donor, it's actually really, it's this very strange, similar thing. Like you, you're, it just is you're obviously not editing the genes, but you're picking, it's literally like you're, you're going you're to the supermarket yeah. and you're selecting <laughs> right. like, well, yeah, I think I want somebody who went to MIT. I think I want somebody who's six, one and over. I think I want somebody with freckles. Like it's, <laughs> it's insane. And it it's really pretty. So I can imagine that the end of all that is genomic editing and it's terrifying. I, yeah. It is a little terrifying and it's and honestly, it's, it's upon us. Yes. It's upon us. It, in terms of the things that, that blow my mind, uh, to tell you, the things that blow my mind are probably things that like are in the field that I'm in. So this idea of, of intervening on a fetus, right? So, so I had the pleasure and the, and the honor and the luck of meeting Mike Harrison early in my career. Mike Harrison was a, is a pediatric surgeon in San Francisco, and he's considered the father of fetal surgery. And he's the one who is crazy enough to say, you know what? these babies come out with this horrible problem. We should try and fix it before they're born and they'll be fine. Right. And so that's the fundamental thinking behind it and looking at, and the fundamental thing was looking at what seemed like very simple anatomic problems, like a very simple anatomic problem that led to a catastrophic physiologic problem downstream as they were born. And so we went from doing things like really simple stuff, like putting tubes in, in the bladder for a kid that had a, a bladder outlet obstruction to try and drain the bladder, to let the fluid get out, to help, not only try and maybe potentially save the kidney function, but in a roundabout way, save the lungs. So when those kids don't urinate, there's no amniotic fluid. The amniotic fluid means if there's no amniotic fluid, they don't breathe it in. And then fetal life, you breathe it in. And that act of breathing actually stimulates your lungs to grow. So if you don't have that, you get born with these terrible lungs that don't work and you essentially die from respiratory failure. So, and on top of it, if, you're, if your bladder doesn't drain, your kidneys see all this pressure and you get kidney failure as well. So it's this double whammy. So that was one of the first things he went after in 1981 in terms of putting a tube in the bladder, getting it to drain, trying to save those kids. And the funny, the sad thing is in 2021, you know, 40 years later, we're still debating exactly who benefits from that procedure and how to do it right. And all. it's still not perfect. Wow. How old, how many weeks old does a fetus have to be before you're allowed to operate on it? So generally, so the, the main Achilles heel of fetal intervention is premature rupture of the membranes, the bag of water. Okay. Generally, and it's made of two layers called the chorion and the amnion. And those don't fuse very well until about 18 weeks of gestation. So really for doing real sort of stuff where you're putting in larger instruments and making larger holes, you really 
we try not to do it before 18 weeks. In terms of the, so we've gone from doing these fairly simple things where we're trying to put in tubes and whatnot to now one of my colleagues, Tippy McKenzie at UCSF is putting in stem cells into, you can basically take a needle, inject, get the needle into the umbilical cord and inject these cells, stem cells into the fetus and cure diseases such as alpha thalassemia, which is a blood dyscrasia, which is essentially fatal. If you have alpha thalassemia, you're, you basically die from either high drops, which is sort of heart failure and, or other complications of that disease. And you can, you could potentially cure these diseases. Many, so actually now a long time ago in, in Detroit, there's a survivor of a stem cell transplant, a fetal stem cell transplant, who had uh, severe combined immunodeficiency or SCIDS which is a deficiency of both the T cell and B cell parts of your immunosystem, of your immunologic system. That baby got a stem cell transplant is now in their twenties. Wow. Um, so it's to me, you know, and of course the genetic stuff is what people talk about a lot because it's kind of it's like CRISPR and whatnot, genetic modification, but that's difficult because really you need to, you need to fix enough cells or all the cells in the body are enough cells so that they, they produce the protein or do the thing that you want them to do. It turns out that the cellular therapy, at least today, so stem cell therapy, may be a simpler or sort of more robust way of getting the cells to create the protein or to make the signals that you want them to. So to me, the the movement from going from putting little tubes and bladders and stuff to actually injecting cells that can take in residence and, and, and cure a disease before it happens, that's, to me, one of the things that, that still ranges on science fiction and just amazes me that one, we can identify the babies that have this problem before they're born. Two, we have a therapy that might work. Three, we can, we can grow these cells on a plate somewhere, purify them enough, and then we can physically, the fact that we, you know, and it's, it's a routine thing, this, this injection of, of, the, of the umbilical cord, but still, I, I find that still just incredibly cool. Amazing. And then be able to give the cells to the baby, they survive, live, and do what they're supposed to do to help that baby survive and have a normal life. Like that to me, that's just, that's getting close to Dr. McCoy, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> right. You know, like Dr. McCoy, you know, waved this little salt shaker people and cured stuff or like right. gave you a pill and you grew new kidneys. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the goal. Like the goal of a surgeon is actually put yourself out of, out of business because surgery honestly is so primitive, like taking a knife to skin to cure something. Mm. That's like, it's really primitive what I do. And so, what we want to be able to do is wave a magic wand or give a pill or inject cells or, or have you, have you take an injection that changes your genome or something and, and, or, you know, in a, in a controlled way in, in a whatever, but to make it so that you don't have to have general anesthesia, which basically puts you on the brink of death and have someone cut you open and do stuff. So this, so what you're saying is Dave should keep watching this show on Netflix. All right, <laughs> yeah. fine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's so it's so unbelievably interesting, you know, where it's fascinating. It's really, really fascinating. And to uh, me, it's it's shocking that it works. And to me, it's shocking <laughs> that 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 we that, that it it's it it's moving ahead and we're doing this stuff. In fact, this is this is a plug from for my work actually. So we are starting, we've opened as of March one the first human stem cell trial in fetal surgery for open surgery. So I, we do these operations for uh, spina bifida, also known as myelomeningocele. So those kids are born with the open neural tube defect, meaning their, their spine is open, their spinal cord is exposed to the, to the amniotic fluid, and they're born with problems like you know paralysis of the lower limbs, inability to, to urinate or stool normally, other problems with their brain in terms of hydrocephalus, so fluid building up in their head and needing other operations to, to drain that fluid and whatnot. So we've been doing fetal surgery for that now for actually almost a couple of decades. And, and we have better improvement in their neurologic function and their, and the hydrocephalus, but it's not a perfect win, meaning the kids aren't out there all running around playing baseball. So we've spent the past 10 years in the lab here working with sheep and, and dogs actually doing fetal surgery on these, on these, on these uh, animals using stem cells to see if putting mesenchymal stem cells in there would help their neurologic function. It turns out that it does. And it turns out wow. that the sheep that are treated with this walk like normal sheep. Wow. Um, and these stem That's cells, which is, which is the cool thing about the stem cells is you could potentially use the stem cells from that fetus 
either through an amniocentesis or what's called a CVS or corneal villa sampling, which is a, a procedure we do in the first trimester to look at the genome of the baby, to look at, to basically see if there's genetic problems with the baby. But you take a piece of the placenta. The placenta actually is the same tissue. It comes from the fetus. So it's fetal tissue. So it's their own stuff. So they potentially, you could potentially grow those out on a plate, get them to differentiate into what you want them to be in terms of the mesenchymal stem cells and give them back to the baby so you could reduce the risk of, of, of rejection. Now, the, the trial we're doing is we're going to do what's called allogeneic stem cell uh, treatment, which is human, but not from that particular fetus. And we've picked a couple of cell lines that work the best for our lab, from our lab. But we're now we're about to start, if we get the right patients, we can start putting these in humans versus animals. And this is the first trial of its kind. Yeah. FDA, it's basically an FDA investigational new drug trial. So it's like putting together a drug trial through the FDA. We're funded through what's called CIRM, the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, which was the stem cell initiative created in, in California after, I don't know if you remember, but George Bush put a kibosh on yeah. stem cell research yeah. and we had a huge brain drain in the United States. And California as a state put $5 billion towards um, stem cell research to keep people in the United States, particularly California, to do this kind of research. So it we've been generously back, funded by them. Yeah, you, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about when we put our money yeah. in places that, that matter, it's incredible what humans it's, can do. It's amazing what you can do. And really, this, this trial, this, this to me is really exciting to be able to, to do something in, in, in humans that potentially could cure a disease that has so many long-term effects in terms of these, these people's quality of life. And it's, it's really exciting. Oh, Shen, you totally inspired me. That's so exciting. It really is. It's, it, and again, this, this is, it's, it's, it's not, I'm, I'm like just a tiny piece of this. I'm just doing the surgery. Like my, my boss, Diana Farmer, who is a Wellesley grad, she, she's really spearheading the lab effort and has been for the past 10 years. And really there's a giant cast of characters that's making this work. Shin, is there a, a place our listeners can go to learn more about that work? Yes, we have a website, which is not in front of me but I'll make sure that you have it. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll send it along. We will put it yeah. in the, we'll put it in the show notes. We'll check yeah. the, check the show yeah. notes of this episode and uh, we'll yeah, get that word sure. out. So and how does it feel to be part of that? Oh man, it's incredible. It's so exciting. It's first of all, it's terrifying. And <laughs> second of all, it is because it, it, you can mess people up with surgery. First of all, in general, like surgery is a dangerous business. And then to do something new to someone to a fetus, it's, it, it, it makes you like, it, it, it gives you a little bit of a gut check, but at the same time, it's so exciting to have the privilege to be able to, to offer this and to try and, and make, to move the needle really, to make the world a better place, to try to, to try to help people that before really all we could offer them was a wheelchair and catheters, right? I mean, and to try and really to make a difference and really, you know, I, this sounds really stupid, incredibly naive, but really the only thing I've ever really wanted to do with this stupid life that I've been given is to make some difference. And if I get to make a small difference, I, I, I feel like I won, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't care about all the other accoutrements of success. I know there's plenty of people that make way more money. That's fine. There's plenty of people that are better looking and taller and have abs. You know, I, I have abs. <laughs> I'm protecting my abs under under this layer of love. But, but you know, I, I just, you know, it's okay. But if honestly, if I get to do something that matters and I get to, and I get to put a mark where, where we did something really good for a bunch of people, I, that's, that's all I need. They can keep their abs. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want abs. I just, I like the man. And Shin, you know, I have I'm, to ask you, is that, is that something you got from um, your parents or sets or your siblings or where, where did you get that sort of that drive and that fire? That's a good question. And I, we, my siblings, I talk about it all the time because we all have it actually. And I'll tell you Amazing. one thing. So of, of my siblings, I have to tell you, I am, probably the least accomplished. And my siblings are so awesome. And really. Shin, I have to say, I mean, we are blown away by your own life story. Um, And I feel, the thing is, I feel very grateful because I know some of your siblings. I want you to, I I have really very profound memories of Keiko. I mean, I really do. And Keiko's a rock star. She yeah. was then, and but but also th- there's a the thing that I think in terms of 
the thread that carries through all of you is kindness. I mean, I, I mean, sh she was so lovely and she was older. And so she didn't have to be because we were the younger, we were the younger classes, but she was super sweet, but it's powerful what you're saying. So you, you don't have an answer. It's just, you all well, have it. I think that a lot of it does have to do with the fact that, you know, from the beginning, we were expected to work and whether it was chores or schoolwork or whatever. And frankly, the expectation was that we were gonna excel, you know? And the joke is, you're an Asian, you're not a Bijan, <laughs> right? Now, that was never said in those words in our family, but that ethos was absolutely the ethos. There's no question. Mm. There's no question that was the ethos. Well, and, we are, well, sorry, go ahead, finish the thought, Shin, please do. Well, I, and, you know, I, so I, I think it was in, in Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Outliers, where he talks about loss, I believe. And he talks about how it's either CEOs or presidents. I can't remember. There's a disproportionate number of people in leadership positions who suffer loss during their formative years. Interesting. And, and you know, maybe the silver lining of, of sort of the, the trauma that we went through was that it made us resilient and gave us some grit and let us know that even when horrible things happen, you can, you can keep on going and it's okay. And, and life goes on and, and you can still find happiness and love and, 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 and fulfillment despite feeling like everything was lost. And maybe, maybe that had something to do with it. I, I do believe that one of the reasons we all went into medicine and we're all trying to save people yes. is because we want to save people. And I think oh. that that's, that's where that all came from. Cause that's, that's, that's why I did surgery because I get to save lives. And as a pediatric surgeon, the mantra is we don't save lives. We save lifetimes. Do you guys need tissues? It looks like you're all. Sorry. Meredith. <laughs> made me cry. I'm, I'm sorry. No, <laughs> it's good. It's so necessary. Well, it's, it's we also, need, yeah, it's need, also. And, and Shane, like you have done all of those things that, you know, like you have saved lives. You you can go to sleep knowing you've made differences in people's lives in the world. You have already significantly made the world a better place, made people's lives better, given people hope. And that's one of the most critically vital things anybody could do. But it's interesting. You still to hear. look great it's too. Like you don't have the white hair. <laughs> oh, I do. It's just that's no. why it's so short now. I used to love that like long ass hair. You look man. great. You look great oh, as well. Like, do you still have the denim jacket? I, 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 you know, I'm so glad they're back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my husband said the same thing he was like look you don't tell me to throw it away anymore it's, exactly. they're back they're back who it's patch it doesn't have a who patch uh, um, that's what you need well we're up we're up against the clock here guys so we don't have time for all of our regular segments but do you guys have five more minutes five minutes yeah okay sure. so i just have one question for shin and then you're going to get Meredith's final question which is which is awesome and confusing and awesome no so uh, you brought you just mentioned the who and i i think of you, you i don't know if you introduced me to the who shin you you, you forced it upon me i think and, uh, and, so, <laughs> and so i i remember me too. me too i remember listening to it going like but it was weird because like i didn't want I didn't want to admit to anyone that I listened to like popular music, like the go the Go Go's. I really I, like went home, shut the door, the and listened to the Go Go's. The secret is out now, Dave. But do you, but Shin, do you remember? I remember in I mean in ninth grade, you absolutely had to at least say that you listened to two bands. One was the Who. Do you remember what the other one was? I'm going to give you a hint. I mean, at that point, I, I have a guess. Maybe Led Zeppelin, but I'm I I have a distinct memory of it being this band. Oh right. Oh, I love it. <laughs> So the Clash, of course, and uh, yeah. So the Clash has, a, you know, Joe Strummer has a great quote, right? What do you say? Joe Strummer said, "Pete Townsend handed me the what was it? The like the scepter of rock and roll, mm. and I dropped it." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. I, I the wonder. Clash is all, you know, the Clash is high up there. I still listen to London Calling in the operating room. <laughs> Nice. I do. I, I still appreciate the Who. You know, it, it's 
some of those songs, if if you don't think they hold up, go back and listen to them again because they absolutely yeah. do. But do you guys remember a time when when I, I I admit it, I felt pressure about what radio station I listened to, what what bands I listened BCN, to. BCN, right? You had to listen to BCN. BCN. Yeah, I was to just BCN. thinking about WBCN today. <laughs> yeah, WBCN. Charles, yeah. Charles, oh, yeah. and the and the big mattress, yeah. Yeah. Dwayne Ingalls Glasscock. I mean, that's right. Oh yeah, there was a lot of pressure. But I have to tell you, you know, I I liked Madonna back then. We used to play Holiday. I liked Duran Duran. Psychedelic know. Furs. I, I had them on just yesterday. <laughs> they they played my my our spring of our spring thing and spring thing at MIT. It was great. Is that right? Oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Shin, didn't we see the U two Flock of Seagulls and the Fix? It was the together. Police. I mean the police. Yeah. Sorry, not. Oh yeah, yeah. With with Adam. With Adam and yeah. Kathy. Oh, that's right. Kathy was there too. Yeah. That, was, that was really great. That was my first concert. I can't believe I forgot it was the police. It See, I got police. I got dragged <laughs> I got dragged to go to the Dire Straits with Roger, Doug, and Butzel and some others, and I didn't even like the Dire Straits, but I pretended Wait, to was like that the Dire Straits. What, when they were at the Orpheum or yeah. the. the were you there that I night went, as well? I went. I was there. Yeah, I remember Allegra was there and Karen Euler, and now I'm just naming yep. people. Okay. Karen, yeah, yeah, Karen was with me. I think anyway. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, it's true. Music. There was a lot of pressure not to like admit that you like pop music. Like no one wanted to admit they like Spandau Ballet, but now it comes on. <laughs> <laughs> but but the truth is like the music or Lionel like, Richie. <laughs> Lionel Richie's fucking awesome. Excuse me. How could you not sing along to Lionel? Lionel Richie is awesome. He is. That guy's so talented. Are you kidding me? That was amazing. So talented. And actually, for me, the music that that that's the most 100% turnaround for me is like I didn't like Hall and Oates when we were kids at all. And now when I hear it, I'm like, holy moly, these guys are. Oh, I haven't. I haven't made that leap. I haven't made no, that but leap. So, so watch the show, and, and this isn't the plug because I don't even know what channel it's on. That that um live at Daryl's house. Yeah with yeah. Daryl Hall, like singing with like random people. Yep. And it's so good. Did you see the, the <laughs> Kenny, the so Ken, did you see the Kenny Loggins one where? They, no, but that sounds amazing. They just, they break into a jam of Footloose. And can I tell you, it's the uh, best version of Footloose I've ever heard. Like it's, it's, it's yeah. It's those kind, guys are so talented. Yeah, it's a great show. They're so talented. And it's just, it's mind blowing how good they were and how <laughs> clueless I was at the quality of songwriting those people had. I mean, we were 15. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so Meredith, okay. Meredith, we've got time for you to ask the million-dollar question of, of okay. our guest. You may have answered it. I think he answered Maybe it. Maybe he did. I kind yeah. of think you answered it. But so thinking about who you were in Milton, thinking about who you are now, the question was, what would you tell your Milton self, which I think you just... Oh, I, I tell myself lots of stuff, though. What would I tell myself? Yeah. Um, and then... What would your Milton self think of you now? Oh, well, I'll answer the second question first. <laughs> I think that my, my, Milton, my Milton self would actually deride and, and have little respect for what I am right now, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Because I, I, I fancied myself, and obviously I wasn't, but I fancied myself sort of an anti-establishment kind of person, <laughs> like deep inside. I really did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I thought that I would never be dressed like this at work. Right. Or a um, rebel or yeah, riding I, I really, your motorcycle. Yeah, well, I still ride motorcycles. I know. Yeah, no, but, but no, it's, I, I, I think that again, probably because of all the anger, I had a lot of extra rebellion and I, I never really thought that I would be a professional. Like I, I didn't see that as part of the, the goal. And I, cause I, my, my vision was really not very good into the future. And if you had asked me at Milton, especially sort of in high school, what I wanted to do with my life, I wanted to be a musician, actually. I loved playing music. And I don't know if you guys remember, but that's like the only oh, yeah. thing I really, really loved. Yeah. Do, you still play, do you still play guitar? Yeah, I still play bass. And okay. I, you know, I have a band in San Francisco. And actually, the, now they're all on the peninsula because we all, the Diana knows what I'm talking about. We all have kids, so everyone loves to So, and, but it's, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to be a musician. That's what I wanted. And so seeing myself in, you know, now almost an administrative leadership role in medicine. I've been like, what happened to you, my man? (laughs) (laughs) Where did you go wrong, man? Um, And so now what would you tell your high school self? I would ask my high school self to be a little bit more kind. And honestly, 
to try. So I, I don't know if you, there was a lot of division in our in our class, especially by the end of senior year. And Agreed. despite being in a leadership role as head monitor, I did very little to help fix that. Almost nothing, actually. If anything, I withdrew from it because I had problems with the fact that I had friends in both factions. In fact, some of my best friends, my closest friends. And I, I withdrew myself from that confrontation almost consciously. I don't even, I can't remember whether I made a conscious decision, but essentially I, I withdrew from it. And I wish honestly that I, I tried to do something more to, to fix that. And not because it matters so much today, but because I think a lot of people actually got hurt. And at that time, even these small emotional bruises, they're, they're deep when you're a kid, man. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'll remember not to name names, but one of the, one of the few things realizing that this one person who had a tremendous crush on wouldn't consider dating me because I was quote unquote different, which was code for I'm Japanese. I remember that that today, you know, like that, not, not that like there was that she was going to be my wife or anything, but it, it was, that was probably the very first time that a woman or a girl had told me that the reason she wouldn't date me was for something that was completely outside my control. I remember and, that. I remember that climate, Shin. Maybe not so much the from the the racial angle, but it was. But it was rough. That we did have. Devices. We had. Yeah. We we did. Yeah. Me and a couple others did this video project senior year, and we did a, a new segment on the clicks. And there were like there were like five of them. We could. You know. You mentioned the. They call themselves the nerds, the cools. Then there were like geeks like me and there was like the the we talked about the butt room crowd before <laughs> like and yeah. and it was it was a genuine thing and it was it was hard to navigate i would say that you you again i keep we all keep heaping praise upon you shin but just the, just the very virtue in a way you did something noble is you you didn't give up your friendships just because they were in different groups because i remember you would always have a friendly word for me even though we weren't, I wasn't necessarily with your posse. I always, I always remember that about you. So, well, I liked whatever. you and I liked you and Adam, you know, I played jazz with Adam. Right. So, you know, he was actually in, in part of my club, I thought. And, you know, as, as I don't know if you guys remember, but I, I was, I was smoking when we were like in seventh grade. So I was in the <laughs> butt room crowd from like the beginning. <laughs> you, you, were, you were in every, like you, you were like the Switzerland of the class. Yeah, he was. Because <laughs> like, you were at sports, you were music intellectual <laughs> kind loyal unpin downable yeah well I, I think that that was that was all self-preservation man but I, I honestly if I could go back I would say look man you're in a leadership position and you really that's a responsibility and it's not something you just put on your damn set CV and use to get into college you're supposed to do something with this and honestly, mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that was something that if I, if I could go back and, and do something different, and I know it's asking a lot of a 17 year old, but truthfully, mm-hmm. it's leadership, man. And you got it. Leadership is hard. And if you're given that responsibility, I think that you should do something with it. And I, I think if I look back, that's, that's a failure on my part. Guys, I think Shin, we're going to, we're going oh, to have to, can I just ask him one last question? Of course. I was just going <laughs> to um, say, I was just going to say, we need, we're going to have to have him back for season two. Cause I feel like I know we do, but, but Shin, just, I mean, this is going to take two seconds. Did you say you have kids? Yeah. I have a three-year-old daughter. Her name's Lucy Miko. So oh, all right. my, mom, my mom's name was Tomiko. So I named her Miko. After. Oh, that's so lovely. That is so yeah. lovely. Uh, well, I, 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 I didn't want that to go by. I, oh, I well, heard it and gosh. I was like, wait a minute. Late um, in the game, so that means I don't get to retire, right? So if you do the math, like fifty-two. So Shin, just so you know, John Marshall has a three-year-old also. Oh, um, he's a fool like me. Yeah. So <laughs> oh, that's so the nice late to bloomers. Know. Harsh. He, he was he was just saying to me the other day, you know, tales of his three-year-old, and I and I was laughing. I was on the floor because they were so funny. But it's such a great age, and uh, she's a she's a you know I got to tell you, I'm I'm so lucky again. She slept through the night from the beginning. Wow. She hasn't had, I think she's had one temper tantrum and like she's reasonable. So when she wants something and she cries, if you tell her, look, if you do this, you can have it later. She stops and she's reasonable. I mean, she's so reasonable. I'm, I am so lucky. And I, think it's because, I think she knows that I have no patience. I think, I think somewhere in the end, she knows like, if I mess with this guy, he's going to throw me out with his trash. So I actually you know, have to be good. Well, you, you, made her, you made her listen to Baba O'Reilly 10 times in a row to get her oh, to of sleep. Course. I know. So, yes, so. No, so she's, she's been listening to The Who since she was in utero. Actually. Oh, that's very funny. That is very, very she, funny. She likes good music. 
Well, we got we to gotta go. So, Shin, what can we say? Amazing. I mean, no offense to the other so guests, much. but Shin might have been the best. I don't know. It's, it's not a competition. Not a competition, but it was. It's such a privilege and a pleasure to see you all. I can't even tell you how happy it makes me. I can't explain it. It really warms the cockles of a small black and stony heart. It's, <laughs> it's really wonderful. And I got to say, like, thank you for putting this together. And Dave, it's amazing that you've got the ability to do this. I think that's it's an incredibly powerful platform. Thank you, man. And, I, and I'm so I'm so pleased to get to participate. And thank you for reaching out to me. I mean, honestly, from the bottom of my heart. And you're good. You're good people, Shin. And Shin, you're the best. We you, finally you got. We hope the photo yeah. shoot goes well. Yeah. Really. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I also do. You know, Keep I got breathing. what I got. That's all I got. <laughs> Well, you you need to you need to, you need to you need to know that in all of the recording sessions we've done with our classmates, no one has made me cry. And to my knowledge, nobody made anybody. I mean, Meredith was crying too. Maybe Diana. I don't know. I don't know if you were. I held it together pretty yeah, well. Good for you. I, I've I've lost it in my old age. I'm unable to do this. But it I was kind of want moving. that clip to play to me, like for the rest of my life. <laughs> There will have be... a good, have a good, have a good photo shoot, and uh, I hope that the surgery that you didn't take part in <laughs> went well. Oh, no, it's yeah. still going. I'm gonna go. I have to go. I'm gonna go scrub it. Jeez, <laughs> oh, awesome. on on brand. Thanks. He's he's off to the OR. Thank you so much, Shin. <laughs> Thank Thanks so much, Shin. Thank you for everything. Don't leave yet. I'm trying to close the show. This happens every week. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Go to pod617.com for more information about this podcast and others, and we thank you for listening to The Link. See you next time.